the talk tonight is about the power of kindness. There were two significant meetings that the Buddha-to-be had on his journey to full enlightenment. And when he was a prince, as I think uh, Joseph described the other night, he, his first really transformational uh, meetings were the four heavenly messengers, meeting someone old, someone sick, someone dead, and then a renunciate. And this fourth heavenly messenger, the renunciate, <clears throat> the description is one who is more peaceful than peace itself. Being um, a renunciate is a, is a form of kindness to ourselves and to the world. It embodies that element of a deep letting go of control. And as we practice uh, renunciation on the retreat, we get a glimmer of what the Buddha was talking about in regard to meeting someone more peaceful than peace itself and the power it can have on us. Uh, So we see that, say, we decide to do a walking (coughs) very slowly, Uh, we might know that in that walking, our mind might be filled with wanting, or it might be filled with aversion. So it doesn't mean that by (coughs) renouncing going fast, for example, in that moment or moments, uh, that that means we're going to be peaceful. Yes? I mean, renunciation doesn't equal peacefulness. It means being willing to face our suffering. It's sometimes called the suffering to end suffering. But we face by letting go of control of our preferences. We see more clearly greed, hatred, and delusion. We see more clearly the causes of suffering. So the Buddha became a renunciate. And the second very significant meeting for him (coughs) was after he did six years of ascetic practice. So he did these intense years of self-mortification after a life of intense luxury. And he became incredibly emaciated. He was fasting, (coughs) wandering the forest, and he almost died fasting. And he was actually passed out in a ditch. And a young woman named Sujata was carrying a rice, a bowl full of rice gruel for her mother to make an offering to her family gods and goddesses. And she went by the Buddha-to-be in this ditch and saw that he was almost dead. And instead of making this offering to the deities, because she was <coughs> moved to such compassion for his suffering, she offered the rice gruel to him instead. Now, we don't always have this teaching emphasized enough. It's like it's because of this genuine purity of heart. It's because of her genuine kindness 
that the Buddha discovered the middle path between self-mortification and self-indulgence, a relaxed effort in practice. So for several days in a row, instead of making the offering for her mother, she made the offering of rice gruel to the Buddha-to-be, and he started getting his strength back. And he was very touched by her kindness. And this kindness (laughs) was so supportive to the Buddha-to-be's practice that then he had the strength to make the determination to sit through the night under the Bodhi tree. And he made the resolution not to move until complete understanding occurred, until he was totally free from suffering. I think it can be easy to forget that that's the the foundation of the practice. Kindness, renunciation. So kindness is what gives us the strength to practice renunciation and have the strength to follow the aspiration until we're fully liberated. Renunciation, or letting go, means that we uncover how we suffer as human beings, and we face how we're oppressed by the controlling mind or the reactive mind. And we learn for ourselves, we see that aversion or attachment or delusion aren't necessary. They're reactive but because of ignorance, because we don't see clearly the truth of things. So yes, in this great uncertain stream of change that we take birth into, of unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral, when we say, may we be free from suffering, or may we be happy and peaceful of heart, it doesn't mean may we never experience pain although sometimes it seems like that would be a good idea. So what we're wishing is may we be free from the suffering of attachment, we may be free from the suffering of aversion, maybe we be free from the suffering of delusion. The genuine kindness of Sujata in this human world is so important and it can be so rare. This is a poem from the 14th century from a Chinese hermit called Stonehouse. Below high cliffs, tigers and snakes are my neighbors. Once I forgot my mind, 
their natures suddenly became tame. People born in this world all have something divine. Mouths of teeth, head, hair. Why can't they be kind? Why can't we be kind? When I'm in Burma, and I start to understand that the culture, most of it, is based on the story of Sujata. It's like the villagers repeat the story over and over and over. They take it literally that feeding a yogi is what gives them the strength to be fully liberated. And it is true. That genuine kindness, that purity of heart. So for a lot of us Westerners, that when we're in the monastery and we're being fed, the villagers watch us eat the food they've given. And they get so happy watching us eat because they understand what they're doing. Toward the end of this three-week retreat, the last retreat that I taught in Burma, there was a man that was sitting in the retreat that was having a lot of unworthiness come up while the villagers were watching him eat. And when he asked the question, he started crying. He just said, you know, I just can't receive this kindness. I feel so unworthy. And I could very easily have said something like, you know, they're not giving to you personally as a personality. You know, this is something very deep and it's not personal. But also, it was very important to really see how we resist the experience of unworthiness. And then how does that block our ability to do the practice? Mindfulness of unworthiness is really important. And I see how grateful we can be to the villagers, their kindness, that purity, the genuine kindness, because it cracks us open. It's like that reenactment of Sujata's kindness is meant to crack us open. It cracked the Buddha open. So if we're really able to receive kindness, we're able to receive life as it is. And we won't strive in the practice. We will find a balanced effort in practice. This is a quotation from the prison letters of George Jackson from Soldad Brother. 
As some of you know, he spent 10 years in prison, and seven of those years were in solitary confinement. And he was killed by a prison guard in Attica in the prison riot. And this is about our human need and our sensitivity to kindness. The significant feature of the desperate man reveals itself when he meets other desperate men, directly or vicariously, and he experiences his first kindness. Someone to strain with him, to strain to see him as he strains to see himself. Someone to understand, someone to accept the regard, the love, that desperation forces into hiding. Those feelings that find no expression in desperate times store themselves up in great abundance, ripen, strengthen, and strain the walls of their repository to the utmost. Where the kindred spirit touches this wall, it crumbles. No one responds to kindness. No one is more sensitive to it than the desperate man. The good question is, are you desperate enough? So hopefully, as we're here at this retreat, we'll start to understand the the relationship between the generosity that allows you to be here, the kindness that the staff show us, the power of the renunciation, and see that relationship to what allowed the Buddha to practice the middle way. Hopefully we'll start to see the relationship between our strength in our days of practice, our balanced effort, and our resolution to be free from suffering. One aspect of this strength is applying some continuity of mindfulness to the practice. Sometimes we don't always see continuity in practice as a kindness to ourselves. In a way, it's what protects our concentration. It protects our practice. So for example, continuity in practice is if we are at a sitting, we don't take a break, go to a walking, come back to the sitting, you know, go to a walking. There's some continuity there. And as I said, I think the first night I gave a talk, that continuity turns the fire up. It's meant to turn the fire up, meaning that hopefully we'll see more suffering. (laughs) That's the idea. The first time I really got a glimpse of this was during a long retreat in this hall. And it was colder than this outside. It was probably late November. Uh, 
and everybody left the hall for tea. And I was sitting in here, and I was having the deepest contentment I've ever experienced in my life. It was just like, I didn't feel any need to go to tea. I didn't feel any need to, to have any particular experience. It was just that total equanimity and peace. So the bell rang, people left, and I was so quiet I could hear people in the dining hall kind of spoons moving, you know. And then this little thought came through, this little thought that I wasn't mindful of, that was like, I'm missing something. What are they having? Uh, And it just, the, the longing for that sweetness of equanimity just shot up. It was like I thought that wanting to go to tea was ruining my contentment. And I didn't get that being able to be mindful of that longing and wanting would bring me back to the present moment and that I could be content if I could shift to being mindful of wanting. And I sat there with that kind of determination that's so powerful sometimes in our practice, and I just wouldn't move until I understood that. And when I started to understand that, that freedom didn't depend on what was happening, but how I was relating to it, and that I could be content with that mindfulness of longing or wanting, tears started to come down my cheeks because I felt like I understood what the Buddha was teaching. I understood that I could watch my mind no matter what was happening in relationship to anything, and I knew that this wasn't the end you know, of my practice, but the beginning. So if we can start to understand that we don't always have to be identified and act on the wanting or the aversion, this understanding strengthens us. It gives us freedom. So the more we're identified with our own thoughts or others' thoughts, we become weaker and weaker. And the more we can just notice resistance, or fear, or metta, or equanimity, (laughs) or hunger, come and go by itself, and we're not identified, we don't act on them. We get stronger, more peaceful. The first year that I went to Burma, it was a big stretch for me. I'd never been to Asia. And to be a Western woman teaching with a Sayadaw in Burma, I just don't even think, you know, it's ever happened. And it wasn't like Sayadaw Ulakana had asked me. He was expecting Steve. (laughs) And even for him to be willing to teach with a Western lay man, was so radical. It's like it just wasn't, it isn't done there. So when I showed up, you know, I knew he was probably not going to jump for joy. Uh, And certainly, 
I knew that if he accepted me, I knew that it wasn't like the rest of the crew were going to accept me. Uh, so I went up to Sayado and I, you know, said, <laughs> you don't have to do this if you don't want to. You know, I'm not attached to being here doing this. You know, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, I almost knew what I was going to be in for um, because it was so radical. And he was fine with it. Uh, but not everyone else at the monastery was fine with it. But the first year, I was a guest. And in their culture, it's, it's really important to be polite to a guest. So I was treated very politely. And the second year, you know, it was like I went back to the family home, right? You know, I wasn't a guest anymore. And that second year was so tough. And I had no context for it. It's like I was, there was so much loneliness. And I felt like such a pioneer. Um, there was no one I could talk to about what was going on or how I was treated or what I was perceiving. And um, it was very hard. So last year, my third year, everything went as good as it can get. I mean, it was just like extraordinary. The weather was good. <laughs> the translator was good. The cook was good. It was like um, amazing. Uh, and the, you know, one week went by, and another week went by. And then I started noticing <laughs> how I wanted that to happen next year. You know, and I wasn't even done with that year, right? And I'm, I was sitting up in my kuti, and it was just this wanting, you know, next year to be as good as this year started to come up. And then I saw this fear, you know, of it being like the year before. You know, I just didn't think I could go through another year like that. So I was watching that wanting and the fear. Um, <clears throat> and then I just let the mindfulness take over. It's like, just watched the wanting, watched the fear, let it come and go. And then I just saw that I don't know. You know, I don't know what's going to happen next year. I didn't even know if it was going to change the next day, you know, or the next hour, never mind the next year. And being able to just be with that uncertainty. And it really comes down to, like, what do we trust? What can we trust in this world of change? Hopefully we start to trust mindfulness itself, you know, that we do have the capacity to be okay with insecurity and uncertainty and know that we have the strength of mind to learn from whatever's happening. I see the same kind of situation happen with the poignancy of the beauty of autumn. And especially the crimson, you know, red maple, reds, you know, that they're so beautiful. And when they're peaking, it just makes me cry. You know, it's just so beautiful. And then I'll feel myself being in the moment with that. And then I'll feel myself gripping. Like, it doesn't last long enough. It's so short. You know, it's so fleeting. 
And then I'll see myself again, just let go of control. That's the renunciation and the kindness to just let that process happen of being with the beauty, the fleetingness. And we can have a very deep contentment if we can let that just happen. So you see how you can have this idea that contentment is um, dependent on experience rather than seeing that contentment can happen when we accept the wanting, the fear, let it come and go by itself. We'll often feel a deeper strength and freedom from that. The Pali word for craving is loba. I like that word, loba. And it's said to be the basic cause for physical and mental suffering. The Buddha said that when loba arises, there's no contentment. Loba doesn't have the nature of contentment. Humans tend to be like slaves in need. So it's greed that becomes a slave to craving. And ultimately, we need to learn that it's just wanting that wants. It's not I that wants or you that wants. It's just the mind state of wanting that's wanting. And the same with hatred. It's just hatred that hates or fear that is fearful. It's not you or I that is fearful or hating. And it's just delusion that can't see clearly. It's not you or I that is deluded. So as we go through the places in practice where we get lost in attachment or lost in aversion or fear and lost in delusion, it's really important to understand what a balanced effort and practice is, or a relaxed effort and practice is. And this is from Sayadaw Ujodaka from Snow in the Summer. Effort in meditation is like learning to ride a bicycle. In the beginning, you put in too much effort and you fall off. Later on, by doing it repeatedly, you learn to put just enough effort to keep you on the bicycle, so you can put more effort to move forward. You learn by doing it. The most important point, I think, is continuity. If you know what mindfulness means, then be mindful more and more. By being mindful, you learn how to be mindful with relaxed effort. If you think you need to put more effort in, do it and see how it affects your mind and mindfulness. You will learn how to maintain your mindfulness. You will find that your mind is not at ease when it is not mindful. I found that it was really important for me to understand the relationship between high energy, medium energy, and low energy, and how much continuity in the practice I could have. So for example, I 
started to know my energy rhythms during the day of practice. And when there was more energy, I felt I could be more continuous. And when there was less energy and I was tired, I found that I couldn't maintain the same level of continuity. And that was okay. Ultimately, you have to find out for yourself and to get to know your practice really well. Especially if you've done enough practice, you'll know when you need to stretch or when you can stretch or when you need to tread lightly. So sometimes if we're really overwhelmed by unpleasant mind states or we're tired, that can be a time to to be more light or to back off in practice. And other times, it's really important to stretch. A very, a very light example of this was the last time I was teaching at Spirit Rock. There was a woman who hadn't done a lot of practice there. And when the late night sitting came, she was really afraid. And she wouldn't go to the sitting. You know, so she came to me and she said, you know, after the talk, can I just see you for a moment? And can you encourage me to do the late night sitting? And she was really afraid, but it was actually just that simple. You know, it was just her kind of making that determination to do it, to get a little hit of encouragement, like one mind moment, basically. And it was so strengthening for her. It's like she never felt like she had the courage to stretch like that in her practice. This can take all kinds of forms. It's like the last time I was sitting in the cottage at the study center. There was a point where I was walking up the path to go back to the cottage. And I saw two people walking toward me on the path. They were just going for a walk together. And I knew that it would be much more helpful for my practice if I went away around so that I didn't even come near them, so that I didn't even hear the sound of their voices. It was like protecting the solitude. That's a kind of knowing your own practice and knowing the power of protecting the practice. So it can be very subtle in that way, or it can be very gross in the example of whether we have the courage to come to a sitting. An aspect of kindness in relationship to renunciation is renouncing impatience in the practice. It's renouncing having to be perfect. So, for example, when we say continuity, it doesn't mean striving. You know, it's like if we say, okay, I'm going to be mindful all day, that's going to get very heavy. You know, it's like if we say, okay, I'm really going to be mindful the next moment. You know, that's very light in comparison. And so, if you look at that 
process of saying, I'm going to be mindful the next 24 hours, we're caught in time. We're caught in the future. Or if we think, you know, I can't do that because I can't possibly be mindful all day. That's getting caught in the past. It's like, either way, it's getting caught. But if we really make that effort, in the present moment, to be mindful as we can there, it's often quite energizing and light. It's like we can live through that next moment, and we can live through the next moment. It's easy to forget this. Mindfulness has a kind of contagion. So if we're around someone who has that aura or smell of a genuine mindfulness, it's often catchy and it will slow us down. Uh, I think it helps us in the way that when the Buddha-to-be saw the renunciate, seeing someone peaceful transformed his life. Is coming in this hall. It's like I have a life where I go out. I don't stay in this building. And when I come in this hall, it's just like so wonderful in here. It's so quiet. So you get you get used to it, but within this realm of people here. I think you'll know. You know when somebody walks in their room and slams the door, you know, that's catchy too. We, we forget how deeply intertwined we are and how we affect each other. It's not possible to do this practice alone. That reminded me, thinking about how we can't do this practice alone, of a quotation by Tennessee Williams. He said, When so many of us seem so lonely, it would be quite selfish to experience our loneliness all by ourselves. That's what we're doing here. And there's such deep conditioning to think that we need to do something with the loneliness instead of to become interested in the experience and finding liberation through the experience of loneliness. That's mindfulness. And that's when we shift from the personal story to the universal or absolute level of freedom. So contemplating the middle path, you know, that came from Sujata's rice scroll, we're not meant to be too comfortable. It's not called the upper middle path. 
and it's not meant to be self-mortification. So at this point in the retreat, it can be helpful to just look and see, am I at my edge? If we are, great. And if you're too much at the edge, it might mean backing off a little bit. But if you can look at a place in the day and see, well, can I stretch a little bit here, even if it's just a little bit? Remembering that that stretching is a form of kindness to ourselves, not a kind of deprivation. It's called playing the edge. And often if we do that, there'll be fear. You know, if we play the edge, there's often some fear. For example, say we say, what will happen if I don't eat that next bite of food? If we realize we've had enough, but we don't know what will happen if we don't fill up like usual. Whatever. You know, these these stretches are very individual. I suppose practicing with Sayada Upandita for me was a lesson daily in learning how to stretch. There was a point in my practice where I felt that um, I was just at my limit, (laughs) just stretched to the max. And I went in for an interview. Uh, and, you know, I could tell something was up. He just had that look, which he usually had that look with me every day anyway, but it, it looked more more like a look than ever. And so <laughs> he had us um, write little notes down, you know, for reading our report to him so that we didn't waste any time thinking during the interview. You know, so I used to edit mine because he was very, um, he wanted me to take the least amount of time as possible. So I I spent some time editing my notes. (laughs) But if you (laughs) you could see my notes, you'll see that they aren't exactly um, calligraphy. (laughs) You know, they're not exactly, you know, what you would put in a museum, except if it was a museum for my notes. Um, so Sero probably had been watching how my notes looked. I don't know how he did, because I used to keep them kind of like this. But so that day, uh, he asked to see them. <laughs> and so I was like, my notes. And so I had to give him, and you know, he said, you didn't make this letter mindfully. And then he said, you didn't make this letter mindfully. And I just, I just wanted to scream. You know, just all I, all I felt was just like, leave me alone. You know, just, <laughs> I am out of here. You know, it was just like, give me a break, you know. <laughs> you know, that's how interviews felt anyway. But this was just like, oh. And I walked out of there like, uh had my usual cup of strong tea after my interviews. I always had my little tea party to balance myself. And, uh, oh, he was right. It was, again, watching how when I took the time, when I eventually recovered and was willing to try it, it slowed me down. And that continuity actually helped my practice. Now, this might not mean 
that that's what you do. You know, it's, it's a matter of you just looking and seeing where you could be a little more mindful. That's what matters. It's like I spent some retreats having mindfulness of my hands be an extra touch point in my day so that if I was washing dishes or brushing my teeth or brushing my hair, I remembered to bring that mindfulness to that experience or those experiences. I've mentioned sometimes before where I took a retreat where because I wear sneakers to do walking meditation, I really made an effort to take that time of tying the shoes to be a place of continuity. For me, that place of tying my shoes was a place of great impatience and something that I would always rush through. So that's our, that's are often the places that are interesting to try to slow down. Now, I didn't try to slow down the whole day. I tried to slow down a little more carefully just with tying the shoes. But what happens if you do that, you'll find that that will give you the energy to be a little more con- continuous somewhere else. You don't try to do it all day. I mean, the place that took me years to be mindful was in the shower. For some reason, when I'd walk in the shower, I was gone. And I'd come out, and I, I used to be flabbergasted. It was just like, <laughs> how does this happen? You know, every shower, year after year. And suddenly, at some point, I was able to do it. So you don't have to judge where you lose it as much as try to find the places where you stand some hope <laughs> to do it some. And that ability to do it will bring more rather than less. When we have that fear come up, even if it's very subtle or great in relationship to continuity, it doesn't even mean you have to be stretching. It can be on your way into the hall, you know, or on the way to walking. Uh, But when we notice uh, fear come up, look carefully at how easily we get caught in thinking to avoid the insecurity, to avoid the fear. It's like so much of our thinking is avoidance of the experience. And if you can know this, again, not in a place where you have to be tough on yourself, but just in a way to start being interested in how much thinking starts to appear. If it's a kind of anxiety, often we start to worry. If it's a kind of low-level fear, we'll start planning. Uh, But however it happens, try to remember to connect your attention with the physical body. It doesn't mean that the experience of fear will reveal itself. It might be that you just make space for it. And if you check your physical body and and you look at your mind and you don't see it, fine. You don't have to get the shovel out, dig anything out. But if you do notice, it might be just a few fluttering sensations in the abdomen, or it might be just a little tightening in the throat. And you make a soft mental note, fear, fear, or whatever. You know, this is a way to start making room for the experience rather than getting lost in thinking as a, as a 
(laughs) great avoidance of the experience. If we attack ourselves for the experience of vulnerability or fear, if you look closely, often it's a fear of being unlovable or a desire for approval. And it's often when we're at our most vulnerable that we're the least compassionate for ourselves. So if, you're, if you find yourself caught in a kind of downward cycle of shame and worthlessness and judging mercilessly, why don't you stop? (laughs) Try to open up the attention. You know, after a sitting, you might go outside, have a cup of tea outside, or go for a little walk outside. But to try to start again with some tenderness or kindness for yourself. And recently, last year, when I was teaching this retreat, I had a sense of um, how we can develop an inner coach that is kind when we're vulnerable and ready to attack ourselves for it. Uh, Last year, I had the opportunity to bring a young woman to her soccer games in Amherst. Uh, And her coach was so different than the coaches that I had in high school for sports. Somehow, I don't know how I did it, but I played, if you can picture that I played field hockey and basketball and softball all four years of high school. Um, And my coach was the type of person that believed um, in a very different style of coaching than the coach that I saw last year. And this coach had this agenda that winning wasn't important. And he was happy if winning happened, but his agenda was that the the team learned to play as a team and to watch out and care for each other. And that, (laughs) that it was good to know how to play well and to do one's best. And he was so kind. And my coach had this idea that winning was really the only important thing. And that even if you did your best, that it was a failure. You were a failure if, if we lost. And it was like our efforts were usually, I don't, it was like they were never good enough. So when I noticed this coach coaching this team, whether it was the other team or his team, if somebody tried well, uh, even if it didn't score a goal or even if it didn't, you know, if it was a play that didn't work well, he would say, nice try. I mean, I almost fainted. He, he said, nice try to the other, <laughs> other team. It was just shocking. Uh, and I would encourage you to see if you can bring that kind of awareness all of your fellow sufferers here. How much, how much of the time are you thinking for each other? Nice try. 
or for yourself. When you get lost in thought, you know, the <laughs> 10 billionth time in the day, uh, nice try. It's really a different attitude. And it's quite easy to shift from a downward spiral, which is often caused by not being able to be mindful of fear. And then we get into a doubt attack and then a, you know, a heavy self-hatred attack or judging others. And it can shift when you say, nice try. It's that simple. And you'll start to get a sense of what I'm saying in this talk, that it was the kindness that Sujata showed to the Buddha to be. It was that genuine purity of heart that gave him the strength to find a balanced effort and practice. And it's the same for you or me. It's like finding a balanced effort and practice happens through kindness, listening, not striving. I gotta get a stick <laughs> to hold my arm out. Nope, I don't think it's possible. Well, maybe I can. <laughs> Let's see. This evening, the sturdy Levi's I wore every day for over a year, and which seemed to the end in perfect condition, suddenly tore. How or why, I don't know. But there it was, a big rip at the crotch. A month ago, my friend Nick walked off a racquetball court, showered, got into his street clothes, and halfway home collapsed and died. Take heed, you who read this, and drop to your knees now and again, like the poet Christopher Smart, and kiss the earth and be joyful, and make much of your time, and be kindly to everyone, even to those who do not deserve it. For although you may not believe it will happen, you too will one day be gone. And whose Levi's, and I, whose Levi's ripped at the crotch for no reason, assure you that such is the case. Pass it on. Be kind to everyone, yourself, even when we don't deserve it. I have the great privilege of being in this wonderful kuti, a cottage over the Irrawaddy River when I'm in Burma 
It's a cottage that Steve had built for himself, but he's never seen because he's not allowed in Burma. And over the years being there, I find that the most beautiful time of day is before sunrise, probably two or three hours before sunrise. And as it starts to get light, one can see the river. And the river is so still this time of year. So when a boat comes through, and boats come through every so often, it's like not steady. So if you see a boat come through, you can see their wake, that they leave perfectly. It's extraordinary. And it's important to contemplate what kind of wake we leave in life, sitting, walking. It's like there's a wake that we leave when there's fear. There's a wake of aversion. There's a wake of attachment. There's a wake of delusion. And there's a wake of kindness. And there's a wake of peace. And the mindfulness practice is noticing that. And learning to be kind enough to be continuous with the mindfulness so that we can free ourselves from suffering. Let's sit for a minute. 